What does the future of space exploration look like? How can we unlock the opportunities of outer space without repeating the mistakes of colonization and exploitation committed on Earth? How can we ensure that AI and new technologies reflect our values and the world we want to live in? Alan Steele is a science fiction author and journalist. He has written novels, short stories, and essays, and been awarded a number of Hugos, Asimov Readers, and Locus Awards. He's known for his Coyote trilogy and the novel Arkwright. He is a former member of the Board of Directors and Board of Advisors for the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. He has also served as an advisor for the Space Frontier Foundation. In 2001, he testified before the Subcommittee on Space and Aeronautics in the U.S. House of Representatives in hearings regarding space exploration in the 21st century. Alan Steele, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So we're big fans of your work and Coyote, your series. I believe you're going to share a passage with us. Coyote was a novel that I wrote about a little over 20 years ago now. But it's a novel about first starship from Earth and the first interstellar colony. But on a deeper level, it's sort of a retelling of early American history through the lens of science fiction. So I'm going to read the very beginning of it from the first edition. Because in the first edition, in the very first paragraph, there's two scientific mistakes that I didn't realize I had made at the time, of course, and which only appeared in the first edition. In every subsequent edition since then, I've had it cleared up. I think that maybe since we're talking about the creative process, maybe that opens up a window into that. So this is the prologue. This is the story of the new world. It begins not there, however, but on Earth in the closing years of the 20th century. The Milky Way is nearly 100,000 light years in diameter. Within its spiral structure are approximately 50,000 stars, ranging from tiny protoscoalacing within great clouds of interstellar dust to white dwarfs nearing the end of their lifespans. Between these extremes are tens of thousands of suns, some tightly clustered together near the galactic core, the vast majority isolated from one another by distances incomprehensible save by mathematical reckoning. The commonplace among the main sequence stars, comprised of the leftover mass from the star's infancy, gradually formed over the course of millennia by tidal forces within the accretion belts, through the afterthoughts of creation. At the beginning of the 20th century, only a handful of scientists and the smallest fraction of the public thought intelligent life existed beyond Earth. By the time the 21st century arrived, it was difficult to find a well-educated person who believed otherwise. It stood the reason that if planetary systems existed throughout the galaxy, then life, too, must be widespread. Yet even as writers, artists, and filmmakers envisioned a galaxy, indeed an entire universe, teeming with extraterrestrials of every conceivable shape and size, many astronomers and astrophysics began to suspect the opposite. Although it was true that most main sequence stars were capable of generating planets, it appeared far less likely than assumed earlier that most of these planets were able to harbor life, save perhaps in its primitive condition. Now, did anybody spot the scientific error? Oh, well, I got so caught up in the story that I actually missed it. You missed it. <laughs> yes. Melanie, did you happen to catch it? There were a few instances where I was like, okay, I feel like it might be about the prototype stars. And then, no. no, not those. That's really cool. But that's not. Okay. Uh, no, it wasn't. The era is in the very first paragraph of the novel where I written, Milky Way is nearly 100,000 light years in diameter. Within its spiral structure are approximately 50,000 stars, ranging from tiny protoscoalacing within great clouds of interstellar dust 
white dwarfs nearing the end of their lifespans. Between these extremes are tens of thousands of suns. Okay, the two eras, there are not 50,000 stars in our galaxy. They're more closer to 400 billion, just slightly off, just a little bit. And there are not tens of thousands of suns. There are tens of millions of suns. Now, how could I make such a glaring error is the question. And that has to do, I suppose, with the creative process. My research is heavily, heavily research-based. And behind me are two bookshelves. And the books in there are reference books, all of them. And I consult these things when I'm working. Every now and then I get stuck, you know, and I'll be writing something. I'll go, I need something. I don't know that figure right off the top of my head. So I reach around and I grab what seems to be the nearest book, pull out, rifle through the pages. Oh, there's the answer. And I plug it in. I had picked up what I thought would be a likely book, read through the pages. And oh, okay. I didn't know how many stars were in the galaxy. So I had to look this up real quick. So I pulled out a book and looked it up, wrote down that figure, and then wrote another one for how many G-class suns would be. I wrote down that figure. I was looking at the right book, Cosmos by Carl Sagan, but I was working at the wrong page. If I had read a little closer, what I would have seen was that was about the figure for the number of stars within our local quadrant, within the Orion Spur. That's a small number. That's the local neighborhood of our galaxy, not the galaxy as a whole. And I guess the lesson to be learned from this in writing hard science fiction in particular is that you can't be too careful. I'm a diligent, careful researcher, but I can make a mistake, and anybody can. And so if you're going to write science fiction, you do your homework, and you do it as closely as you can, and you try not to make stupid errors like that. I mean, the reason that people are drawn to science fiction is numerous, but for me personally, I think it's more about exploring possibilities. I mean, who knows? Those numbers could be revised. I mean, we're only limited by, you know, the power of our telescopes. And so we're always... It it is in a way just a number. I mean, most people, their eyes just probably flew right over that and didn't realize that made a glaring error about it. I wasn't sure either. I didn't want to chance my arm by saying, I thought maybe, but the area I know more about is climate science. So this planet and not others. But you point out that so much about writing is maybe as much about what you don't know as what you know. And more so with science fiction, but it seems very prescient. That was written, you say, 20 years ago. And I'm wondering, as you reflect upon so many things that you wrote have kind of become true, like you said, a public space exploration. Um, I wonder what your reflections are on how real is Elon Musk's vision to colonize Mars and what kind of numbers we'll be talking about long term, just on this idea of what the reality would be to colonize a planet, the psychological, technological health and environmental challenges. I'm really very glad, I was happy to see that within my lifetime, that the prospects of not just Mars, but in fact, interstellar space is being taken seriously. I've been at two conferences where we were talking about building the first starship within this century. One of my later books, Arkwright, is about such a project. I saw that Elon Musk is building Starship One. 
I wish them all the best, and I envy anybody who goes. I wish I were a younger person and in better health. Somebody asked me some time ago, would you go to Mars? And I said, I can't do it now. I've got a bum pancreas, and I'm 65 years old. I'm not exactly the prime prospect for doing this. If you asked me 40 years ago, would I go? I would have said, in a heartbeat. I would gladly leave behind almost everything. I don't think I'd be glad about leaving my wife and family behind. But I be glad to go live on another planet, perhaps for the rest of my life, just for the chance to explore a new world, to be one of the settlers in a new world. I think this is something that's being taken seriously, and I think, yes, it is very possible. And this is what I was pointing out in Coyote, and tried to point out, is that we've got to be careful about how we do this. We've got to be careful about, particularly about the rationale of the people who are doing this. Coyote Project Starflight in that novel is the offshoot of an extreme right-wing government, and they're doing it for all the wrong reasons, for sheer imperial colonialism. They're going out there initially in this spirit of conquest, almost like the old Spanish in the New World. Tell you a little bit about what the novel is about for people. In the story, the starship, the Alabama, is hijacked by political dissidents and takes ship with its passengers, some of whom are going unwittingly, not knowing what actually happened here. And many of them are completely unprepared for this. Instead of the highly trained passengers, they got other political dissidents, some of whom had no idea where they were going until they were actually aboard the ship. And these are the people who have to be the ones to do this. But their motives, at least, are better than those that the motives are, are more sound than the motives of the people who planned the mission. And I think that's going to be sort of a tightrope walk. I want very much for humankind to explore space, and I think we can do this. But I don't want us to be go in there in, as, as conquerors. I want us to go in there in a very responsible sort of way. And in fact, to learn the lessons that we should have learned from the exploration of our own world, and to certainly not do some of the exploitive things that have been done. It bothers me that taken lately a shift to the right, to the far right. I don't know why that is, but I'd love to be able to sit down and talk with him about these things and try to understand why he has done such a right thing, but for what seems to be wrong reasons and why that's come around. Elon, if you're out there, give me a call. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. He's done some things right. We all applaud the way he's really promoted space exploration, but also electric cars. You brought up one thing. There are exciting possibilities in terms of the space sourced solar power. I think that's oh, great. Yes, it's yes. 24 hour. You can capture it up there. Well, my very first novel about that, yes. Exactly. And so before all of this was becoming a possibility. And of course, the mineral exploitation, it mimics, they're calling it like the new great game up there. And it's even almost fewer countries than were involved in colonial activities on Earth and less governance because who can really see unless you have a satellite? It's even more of a cowboy territory. The idea of government, even if there is a law, who's watching? And this is becoming especially pertinent. We have that the UN Space Treaty is supposed to govern many of these things. Forbids territorial claims of any one country staking a claim on the moon and saying this place belongs to us. But this question came up again with Russia's recent attempt to send a probe not just to the moon, but to the South Pole of the moon, where there are aquatic resources, where we might have trapped water ice beneath, beneath the lunar regolith left there by cometary impacts long ago. 
if, if this is substantial enough, that would be a real resource for space explorers. And given who's in charge of Russia these days, you really have to worry about whether they would actually obey the international space law. And this was discussed in the U.S. and, and with the Putin government, if they put people on the moon. And there is now a race going on. We are back in a space race again, boys and girls. Will the participants here by the letter of the law of the U.N. Space Treaty, or will they simply chuck it out the window and say, ha, well, try to enforce it, which is one big point there that a lot of science fiction writers have talked about. How do we enforce this? There's a lot of new questions that are coming up about this. Science fiction has investigated some of these over time, and I think it continues to do so. Yes. And speaking also, not just of the space exploration, but in terms of science and the new technologies in general, are terrestrial ones that we supposedly can interact with more, and we are all the time with our AI and our chat GPT, but the technology is advancing. And what for you is the role of governance and the humanities in terms of the importance of having creative writers, science fiction authors, philosophers involved in putting the humanism back into the technology? I think that we do have a role. This is what science fiction has always been good at is being able to digest a lot of stuff that's been put out there, research, scientific discoveries, and so forth, and be able to see what's beyond the horizon. And science fiction actually has an interesting and a deeper role. I think sometimes it influences it. I believe that there's kind of a creative loop that goes on between the sciences and SF. Typically, you have some sort of scientific development or discovery is made. And a science fiction writer looks at this and says, wow, an interesting story could be done of this. So they write a story and it's published. And then somebody in the sciences comes along and reads that story and says, well, that's an interesting thought. I wonder if this could actually be made true. And so they begin to work on this. They begin to develop something that's inspired by that story. And then another science fiction writer comes along and looks at that development and says, yes, but what if? And then they write a story about that. And another scientist comes along and looks at that story and so forth and so on. It's a loop. This is a great game that's been going on since Jules Verne's time. We, whether or not we actually get it right is almost beside the point. What is happening is that we're actually, I think, seeing what the possibilities are and seeing where the potential problems are is what makes writing good stories that are entertaining at the same time is where when we're doing it right, when we're really working on all six cylinders, SF is, is at its best. I think that it's really helped a lot of people, as well as to envisage and perhaps retain those humanistic values in their technologies, those who listen, because there's others that are motivated otherwise, but it has helped us imagine possible futures. And so, as you say, you may be kind of co-creating some of these technologies, but for you, what are your reflections? There are a lot of big terms put out there? Will we have the singularity in 2040? Somebody pointed out to me the singularity seems to be always something that's itself perpetually 10 years away from happening. But on the other hand, space travel has always been something that's been perpetually 10 years away from happening. It, it takes a long time for these things to come around. But uh, it will arrive, like climate change. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, that's coming faster than anybody anticipated. But it always happens a bit differently. You know, in the 1940s, if you read, I read a lot of classic science fiction from the golden age. And if you go back and read it now, something that really strikes me is that you see a lot of projections that were made for this period of time. 
early 21st century. And in some ways, they're very wrong. There's a lot of science fiction in the 1940s that had the solar system well colonized by now, that we have people living on Mars and Jupiter itself. It took a long time for us to learn that you can't live on Jupiter. You can live on the moons, but not on Jupiter. Uh, more thoroughly colonized solar system. These same stories had that were everywhere, that we had robotic servants throughout, and some of them very humanoid. We had cities that were very futuristic. It looked like something out of an old Jetsons cartoon. Now, on one hand, we didn't get this, but we got something that's like that. People have not colonized the entire solar system, but we've sent out robotic probes throughout the entire solar system. We've, we've seen almost every corner now of our neighborhood, and we've even sent probes beyond the reaches of our solar system. We don't have household robots. Instead, we've got computers everywhere, and electronics are ubiquitous. It's amazing. I don't think anybody could have actually foreseen the day that you would have electronics built into a coffee pot, that you would actually have pens that would have, or any number of different smart objects built into them. Certainly telephones. Although Robert Heinlein accurately predicted cell phones in the 1940s. So we've gotten these things right. We've predicted very well what we've done, but it's only been by analogy. It's not an exact prediction. This is why I say we're very good at influencing, but we're not very good at predicting. As far as AI goes, here's my personal forecast. And I've actually put this into a couple of stories. I think what we're going to be having is the emergence of a global AI, or maybe more than one, actually. There may be several that are superior in many ways to humankind. They're more intelligent. They're faster, they're smarter, and they become the dominant species on this planet. I think this actually turns out to be a good thing. We don't have the dire Terminator features. We don't have the horrible future where they decide to turn on us and stalk us, and, and, and we have people on the run, robot armies out to destroy us, and so forth. Because there's no motive for something like that. The question you have to ask behind this is, why? And there's no good answer for why. I think that instead, this global intelligence will treat us as their pets. They look at us the way that we look at our dogs and cats. They're very fond of us. We need to be steered right. And, you know, you got to make sure that anything like that. But they're very amusing, good company to have around. I think that might be what we get. We get something that actually runs for our survival. That's the benevolent big brother view, right? There is the dystopia, which you have explored that. And when you asked why, and maybe because they were influenced by video games if they went, that's a kind of a super intelligent AI. So I'd like you to go a bit more into that. Just some kind of things that people are concerned and curious about neural wetware simulation hypothesis. What happens with the future of work when we work with our AI co-creators and post-humanity? If you have some reflections on those. We're already seeing a bit of that. And I think it's very interesting. It's still the almost primitive sort of a level. But I drive a car that when I engage its auto drive system, if I start to drift over the line, it automatically pulls me back. It corrects my driving. If I start to back into something, it alerts me. If I don't obey the alert, it stops the car automatically. This is a form of co-piloting. It's the robot actually correcting my driving. Perhaps more direct to this is the most recent iteration of Microsoft Word that I use. It's a form of what used to be simply auto-correcting. The spelling that suggests a few words down what might be the next word that I could use. And it actually saves me a little bit of time of writing. I can turn that off anytime I want to, but I've actually found that it's pretty expedient to be able to do that. Also, when I began writing, it was on, on the typewriter. 
he wouldn't have even been able to suggest anything like this. It was inconceivable that anything like this would be available to us. So there's a kind of a partnership, I think, is going to emerge. In the most recent stories that I've been writing, it's an update of uh, Edmund Hamilton's Captain Future series. One of the things that I've, I've put in there is, of those updating Edmund Hamilton's future that he projected in the 1940s, where this blue system was inhabited completely by all sorts of different races, where we have Martians, Venusians, Jovians, and so forth. I have that, but I have them as being bioengineered. So that people, the human race, the part of Homo sapiens, which is now called Homo cosmos, regions who are adapted for living on Mars. You have Selenites who are adapted for living on the moon. You have Jovians who are adapted for living on Jupiter's moons. One of the things that they have becomes available, not just to them, but also to baseline humans, is neural net systems that are embedded at birth that are put in there nanosurgically. They're embedded from when you're a kid. It's in, in fact, one of the worst things that you go through as a kid is that when that system is switched on in your infancy, you have something that's like teething pains in children. You get headaches for a long time. Little kids have headaches and they hurt. Eventually, their brains get used to this idea of this neural net system that's in there. It just all goes into the background. But with this neural net system, they're able to engage in an information system that's very much like what we have now, except we're not having to, now we have to rely on screens and fingertips and old-fashioned things like this. This they can pull up as easily as blinking their eyes and information appears on the retinas of their eyes. I think this is a very much of a possibility. Some people might see this as being horrible. If we do get something like that, it's going to be a lot of resistance. There may be a lot of people who say, I'm never going to do my child. I'm never going to do this to myself and reject it. There might even be violent protests, but I think a great many people are, on the other hand, going to embrace it. It's going to be a new reaction to this. I think there could be some good stories there. Anybody wants to steal that idea and run with it, go out of the head. So the natural thing is just to know whether you would do it. If it would work with your body, would you do it? Yeah, I think I would be. Personally, if I were young enough, I imagine it would be something that after a certain amount of time, you couldn't do. I imagine as this type of technology becomes available, that somebody more mature in terms of their body would not be available because they're too far along. They're over the hill. But that would be the great question. Would you do it? Would you want this to be available? You would have to question yourself or rather, do you want to be a cyborg? Which is essentially what this is. Would you like to be a cyborg? That's a great question. One form of medical technology that I would really like to see a lot is in situ organ cloning, where you could actually have parts of your body replaced, cloned and replaced and put into yourself. Unfortunately, I suffer from chronic pancreatitis. I have a pancreas that is failing and will eventually fail on me. I would love to be able to have an organ cloned where it could actually be cloned within me, a replacement. I don't think I'll see that in time for me to be able to take advantage of it. My luck will be announced as being possible about a day after I'm dead. But I would certainly go for something like that if it was available. But I can imagine somebody else saying, no, never. I don't want that. Hearing our producer Mia Funk and celebrated science fiction author Alan Steele discuss in-depth technology, the future, and the arts is already fascinating enough, but to really dive into how these three separate concepts build and play on each other is inspiring. Through his work, Alan Steele has created his very own galactic universe featured in his novels, 
primarily coyote. Even more incredibly so, Steele has done so accurately reflecting and representing real scientific research and historical events. Steele reminds us that it's not life that imitates art, but rather life and art that breathe life into each other. It's an excellent reminder that one cannot look towards the future without first turning back every now and then to the past. Are there technological aspects or ideas that you've written about that you wish reality would catch up on? Well, space exploration as a whole, yes. My very first novel, Orbital Decay, was about the building of solar power satellites. It wasn't my idea. It's been bandied around for a long time. I do think I did one of the more realistic depictions about what it would take to build one of these things. I wrote that book in the mid-80s. It was published in 1980, and I projected that as happening in 2016. Obviously, we didn't get that. I would love to have seen that happen. Unfortunately, one thing I did put out in that same book was global electronic surveillance by using satellites. I came up with that as a completely imaginary type of a thing. And we got that. And so it's disturbed me that we got one thing and not the other. That's something that I try to get across to my science fiction writing friends, and that is we need to be careful about what we forecast. We might just get it. But there's a lot of things. Uh, I just mentioned the medical technology of the organ cloning. I've written about that and also adapting the human body to various different levels. I put that in quite a few different planetary environments. I would love to be able to see that. Like you mentioned, technology is always expanding. Things that you can't even predict are going to come out. If you were to rewrite Coyote today, how would you approach this genre knowing now about technology in the 2020s? That's a good question. I think as far as the Starship goes, the Alabama, I think I got that right. I, I certainly worked hard enough. I don't think that the technology is that I wish were different. I did the research on that novel during the 90s and began work on it in 1999, and it was published in 2002. The science has held up. What I wished did not occur was that I forecast an extremist right-wing government taking over in the United States. Unfortunately, it seems like we're heading that way. The Trumpism looks a lot like what I forecast with the Liberty Party. And I'm not the first person to suggest that. A number of people who've read the books have pointed out that there's a, a scary similarity between what I wrote. My response to that is, I hope that the projections on interstellar travel are what the ones that people remember and not the government in the society that develops this. I don't think it's inevitable. I think we can still turn around. And I sure as hell hope we do. It's reflecting a lot between history and then current events and political events. Uh, what aspects of your own personal life or personal experiences did you incorporate into Coyote, if any? There is a little incident that's related in the novel that occurs in a flashback sequence that one of the characters, Captain Lee, is thinking back to astronaut training when he was in the desert and is camping by himself and he's visited by a coyote in the middle of the night that sniffs around his sleeping bag and wakes him up and doesn't know what else to do, so he yells, boo, and the coyote runs off. That happened to me, and I kept that with me, and it sort of just came out. As I was writing, it wasn't intentional, but as I was writing the story, it seemed like a great place to do this. There's a lot of stuff in there in my stories that there's little bits and pieces that are autobiographical. And friends and family who know me will some spot these things and say, hey, you put that in there. I think a lot of writers do that. And not just science fiction, but many writers. We're sponges for experience. And we regurgitate these things as unexpectedly sometimes in our work. I know of my old writing teacher as a novelist, Russell Banks. 
And there's a story that he wrote in one of his books, the book of Jamaica. It's, it's a very funny little anecdote about a couple of the characters that occurs to them in, in Jamaica, them losing track of their kid for a little bit. And I read this. I remembered Russell telling me about that very same thing when he, he spent a year on sabbatical in Jamaica living there to research this book. And he came back and he told me this story where he was roaring with laughter about what happened. And I saw it in the novel. I just thought, that's great. He remembered that and he put this in the book. I said, and I don't bet there's five people in the world who know that's true. A lot of writing, I think, is in a certain way or other is autobiographical, even science fiction. Indeed. And as you say, it's something that mirrors our own history. When you talk about the experience with the coyote, it reminds me of how you've brought in Native American mythology and hoodoo guru or how in the, in the tranquility alternative, you're looking back at the Apollo program and the moon landing, but considering a, a different historical turning on that. History has a lot to do in science fiction, I believe. One of the things I've really noticed among my colleagues is how many of them are well-rooted in history. And read history even or historical fiction as a pastime. Many of these people are like me. You read history, but then you find out you're incorporating this into your tales of the future. When I was start out writing Coyote, I thought it was just going to be a realistic novel about space exploration, just a realistic look of how we were going to perhaps go to another star. When I was about halfway into the book, I began to realize that I was writing about something deeper. And that was about the early history of the United States, early settling. And that came out of the fact that shortly before I began writing this novel, we moved from St. Louis to Western Massachusetts, to a small town here. This town has been here before the Revolutionary War. I can go up into the hills behind my house and these old dirt roads that you find, and you go up there and you found foundations still of farms that used to be existing there almost 300 years ago. That's how old some of the buildings and some of the relics around this place are. And I absorbed this into the background somehow, into the back part of my mind. I began reflecting on this almost subconsciously as I was writing this novel and what a new stellar colony would realistically look at. When you're living on a planet and you're living off the land. You don't have any magic nanotech devices that can just manufacture anything you want for free when you're actually having to build your houses out of native material. And when I realized this, I was essentially rewriting America. I had to make a decision. Do you want to go with this? Or do you want to continue writing, you know, stop what you're doing here and go back and writing strictly about a science fiction novel? Or do you want to continue in this vein? of exploring American history. And I decided to go with that. So not just this novel, but the four novels that followed it were in that same exploration. I go through a, an analogy to the Revolutionary War. I go through an analogy to the settling of the West. I go through an analogy of the industrialization of early America. And to do this, I had to go and study a lot of American history and see what, what happened there and then kind of reflect on that in the course of this book. I, mean, I think it made for a very strong series doing that. Yeah, it was an area that wasn't really explored by other science fiction writers who have different perspectives on that. And I don't mean to bring it always back down to earth, but our One Planet podcast is that the idea that we have one planet, even though we can explore. In many ways, this idea or the possibility of interstellar colonies would be for one reason, because we kind of screwed it up on this planet. 
I want to ask you about this because considering possibilities on other planets, maybe you could talk to us about what's happening here because you've envisaged on other planets. We're living in the century of the city, this decade of transformation. We hear a lot about smart cities, smart buildings, but a lot of people in cities have little idea of what their future is going to look like when it comes to housing, transport, education, you know, heat surges, storm surges, resource management. I hope the cities change and I'm seeing signs of that. I'm seeing there's a trend in the U.S. towards de-urbanization, where they're taking places, particularly the inner belts in a lot of cities that were built anticipating very large city centers. Those are now being torn down and turned into parks. This is happening in a, a number of Midwestern cities. I'd love to see it happen in my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee, where they ripped up some very nice neighborhoods and put in inner belts that, I mean, what thing is scary to drive on. And I'm not sure how much they really need it now. I think what is happening now in terms of at least American cities is that we're moving away from the idea of big cities surrounded by suburbs towards more and more people moving into towns and telecommuting and working out of their homes. This little town where I live in, Waitley, Massachusetts, when I moved here, I think the population was a little less than 1,000. We've now got a little less than 3,000. It's still a small town. But we've had a lot of people who moved out here, built houses, who had been originally living in New York and Boston. And they still got jobs there. That's still where their employers are. But they found that they can move out here. And so quite a few people have what I have. They take a bedroom and they turn it into an office. We have a little post office here in town, which is once a gas station. Now it's a town post office. And they've literally run out of room because there's so many people using that as their business address. They have the postmaster down there unbelievably busy every day with people coming in there and mailing off packages and receiving packages in a place that was never meant for that. At Christmas time, you can't even get it back there. It's so crammed with boxes. And these are boxes of people actually making things in their homes and sending them out. A little town like this has suddenly gotten up the business of a much larger town because so many people have been here. And we're seeing this all over. We're seeing abandoned factories being turned into a lot of different businesses in a place where old mills and factories used to be. And that seems to be a growing trend. I'd like to see that continue. One thing as, as far as far future goes, and I've written about this too, one of my novels, Ocean Space, I talked about the beginnings of the colonization of the oceans. I think that's a real possibility that in fact, I'd like to be able to at some time or another revisit this again and write about floating cities, floating archaeologies. And it's one of the things I've got in the back of my mind to go back to that particular story, Ocean Space, and project forward from that and go out to about 100 years from now and see what it looks like there and see whether or not that approach is going to be good for the Earth's oceans or be detrimental. Because it can swing either which way on something like this. Oh, I think so. And in fact, one model for that is coral reefs themselves are yeah. underground cities that feed populations and also are a source of food, provide shelter. If we could design cities that were like coral reefs in that way and completely circular in their economy, that would be beautiful. That would be an amazing. I read that. Yeah. One of the one of science fiction's projections that turned out to be a false projection was the domed undersea city. There's no reason to build an ocean colony that looks like that. There's just none. But 
that's an interesting idea of having something that looked like core, that was deliberately designed coral reefs. Geez, if you actually, if you could grow something like this, it's not a bad idea. Thanks. I'll keep that one in mind. It's loaded. <laughs> no, that's actually kind of an interesting idea there, Bia. I might have to play with that one. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy. We're called the creative process, not for nothing. I'm so glad that some of these organizations that we feel are impenetrable or the average person can't get involved in, I know that you have served on the board of advisors from the Space Frontier Foundation and also on the subcommittee on space and aeronautics in the U.S. House. I testified before the House subcommittee. That was fun. That was a very exciting experience. They invited me in. Both of those people came. I didn't want to join this. I didn't go to Congress and say, I want to testify before you. And then Space Frontier Foundation, they they invited me to do this. There's been a couple of other things that I've done too. This has all been when somebody involved in one of these organizations decides that they want to have a science fiction writer's viewpoint on these things. And so they come to me. And if not me, somebody else. I'm actually delighted to hear when one of my colleagues gets invited to be an advisor for one private or public organization simply on the basis of what they've written. You've been considering these things long before. I was wondering for you, I really think the humanities are important. Now, a lot of concentration in school is on STEM, but I really feel whether it's considering the future of AI and the new technologies or our enormous environmental challenges that the humanities do serve us. And we have to make the storytelling is as important to mobilize as anything else. So what are your reflections on that? One thing that is really concerning me is the state of American schools. Our public education system is rotting. It is falling apart. One of the most disturbing stories that I heard in the last couple of weeks was where in Texas, they are literally removing the school libraries. They're taking the books out. And they're turning what used to be the libraries into detention halls. And they interviewed a secretary of education in one of these places. And he pointed out, oh, yeah, we didn't take the books out. See, they're right here. Yeah, but there's no librarians. All you've done is that you've stuffed the books onto the shelf with no guidance or anything. I'm, I'm glad to see that this is seems to be something that's really only going on in this country, that overseas in other places, they still take education, primary education, seriously. Unfortunately, it seems to be, for the most part in the U.S., they look at it only as being whether or not they can actually make a profit. And if they can't make a profit on it, then they just fold it up and get rid of it. This country's going to pay a price for that. We're already paying a price for that. I would like to see where we had his core curriculums, a class where we took futuristic concepts and we took it seriously kind of a futurism 101 where we explored things like the impacts of computers where we explored the impacts of AI and many other technologies that are coming along self-driving cars for instance whatever comes along down the road back in 1970 a futurist man named alvin toffler wrote a book called future shock it's been largely forgotten now but he identified it as being the psychological syndrome where people are confronted with something that is a big change which has occurred and they're not ready for it. And so they go into a brain lock and denial. And we're in, in some ways, we're actually seeing that. Nobody talks about future shock anymore, but we actually got it in some places. This is why you have places like these districts in Texas where their response to this thing is to simply, you know, slam the doors, close the windows, pretend it's not happening. That's exactly the wrong response to have. We're not only taking schools 
very seriously. But taking the idea of futurism and looking and making this part of a, a quarter where we look at tomorrow and we see what's been done. I wonder how many people get out of schools now knowing the history of the very technologies that they use. Certainly, uh, the average kid knows how to use a cell phone. They know where this came from. I think that needs to be taught. I think that many of the technologies of these times and how to use these things, use them intelligently. I think that we need to have a better education on these things. Indeed, we have to consider our possible futures. Otherwise, we most definitely will get a future we don't want if we just allow it to happen to us. You said, be careful what you forecast because you could get it. Yeah, that's exactly one of the most predictive science fiction stories I think ever. Go find The Marching Morons by C.M. Cornbluth. It was published in the mid-50s. And you read the story and you're going to think, oh my God, this is happening now. It's chilling. The Marching Moron essentially is a, a guy goes into suspended animation and believing that he's going to wake up in a bright and shining future where we're going to have all these marvels of technology and so forth. And he's going to wake up in utopia. And he wakes up to find that he's in anything but. And that the big change that has happened in humankind is that we just became dumb. And now it's just basically the stupid people won and they took over the world. It's such a disturbing story to read. And unfortunately, sometimes, yeah, it feels like that. But on the other hand, I tend to be more of an optimist than a pessimist. I think that things that were written in the 1950s have come true, just not in the way that we expected. Marching Morons was written at that time also. There were things like A Logic Named Joe, is another great story, written by Murray Leinster. And Logic Named Joe actually predicted the computer as we now know it. It's, it's a great story to see that somebody at Murray Leinster saw this coming in the early 1940s. I wonder how about my creative loop actually may have worked there and how many people read that story and said, I want that. I think offering us these possibilities, because we are not all gifted with such a complex and detailed imagination, but you've given us many beacons to, to look towards and warned as well against certain dystopias that might be down the pipeline. As you think about the future, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? The thing I like to see most preserved are these right behind me, books. Whenever I walk into a library or walk into a bookstore, anything of this nature, I sometimes will stop and look around and just realize that I'm surrounded by the fruits of many people's intelligence, that behind every book is a mind that wrote this. And, and some of those minds are brilliant. Some of those minds are stupid. Some of those minds were mad. Some of those minds were holy. But every one of them, somebody with the best at time and attention into a particular vision or train of thought or something, even a children's picture book. It reflects a kind of a viewpoint. This is what I think has to be preserved, are these nests, these treasures. The story about what happened in, in Texas, where they were removing libraries from schools. I hope that does not become widespread. I want to see, actually, libraries preserved. And I hope that nobody ever takes any book for granted. Never throw away a book. There's no such thing as an old book, just one that was written a long time ago. I agree. Books are people too. Thank you, Alan Steele, for creating fictional worlds where we can imagine possible futures, consider our values, confirm our humanity and empathy in a technologically advancing world. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding a voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me to talk. 
The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. It was conducted by Mia Funk and Melanie Munoz with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Melanie Munoz. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.